welcome to the At Peace Parents podcast. I'm Casey, and I'm here to empower you in your decision-making as a parent of a demand-avoidant child. My goal is to share insights that will generate aha moments and support your connection with your child. I'm a mom of two amazing little boys, one of whom is PDA, and I've worked with hundreds of parents just like you to teach them how to lead their child out of burnout and find the clarity, peace, and sense of community they need. Why is PDA so difficult to understand for parents, pediatricians, therapists, teachers, and anyone looking at your life from the outside? Today, I'm going to be talking about questions that I've been getting. Um, first, for people to like understand whether or not the PDA frame and potentially working with me is a good next step. And I just want to help bring clarity to that so that people can understand the answers to these questions. So the question I left off on was, how do I know if my child is PDA or if it's just defiant or difficult behavior? And last week when I was talking about this, I started with an anecdote from when I used to work at a large nonprofit in Washington, D.C., and my colleagues would make fun of me because I had a saying that I would use at um, what were called methods reviews because our team was in charge of research integrity for the organization, and it was also a policy and advocacy organization. So the policy people or advocates, their teams would come to my team and we would review, is this objective unbiased? Does it have research integrity? And there would be a methods review that I would run. And they would say, you know, we think that putting a 500 square foot conservation area in the Indian Ocean would save X amount of fish that's endangered, right? And my response was always, it's an empirical question. So what does that mean? That's the thing that my, my colleagues and my friendlies would make fun of me for. Of It's an empirical question. We don't always know the answer until we start collecting data, right? And I really want to have you guys bring that mindset to not just the question of like whether your child is PDA or whether they would benefit from a PDA framework, but also as you're experimenting with certain accommodations that I talk about here that you learn elsewhere, because even if it's the correct, quote, correct accommodation for a PDA child, it might not necessarily apply to your child and we have to collect data. So it's an empirical question. And often when parents are trying to understand, is it defiance or PDA or both, because many children have difficult behaviors just because they're kids and kids are difficult sometimes. I always ask them to think about, well, what happens regarding your response, right? So often parents come to this page because they have used more traditional parenting approaches, even if they're gentle, that include boundaries and limits. And they see just like this continual escalation, no matter what they try and do, right? And additionally, I encourage parents to look at how are things impacting basic needs, not just behavior, because often those two are viewed separately, like a child who's defiant, but also has like IBS or gastrointestinal issues or constipation or encapresis, and they're viewed as like, this is a medical issue and this is bad behavior, but they're actually both linked potentially to the nervous system, right? Or, you know, a child who 
has extremely challenging fight flight behavior, but it looks like opposition. And they're also struggling with like understanding verbal communication. It looks like they're just avoiding you or, you know, they're starting to stop eating to the point where you're noticing this and wanting to seek more support. So we have to look at this holistically to answer these questions. And if you see it's just always continually escalating or shutting down, hi everybody, that's a good clue that the root cause isn't motivated behavior or like intentional attention-seeking behavior, which is how people often think of oh, bad behavior. So I'm going to bring the same frame to the next question that I got, and it's one I get often. I have written about it a bit on the Instagram tiles, but how do I know it's not OCD, um, obsessive compulsive disorder, oppositional defiant disorder, ODD, ADHD, or some other neurotype or disorder, right? And again, I'm going to bring to you that it's an empirical question, right? Like I can't just say like, these are the things that would make your kid ODD versus PDA because on the surface, you might see the exact same behaviors, but the purpose of hopefully the work that we're doing here is trying to like more creatively understand the root cause. So, but there are a couple questions that I would ask a parent to reflect on and observe, right? So with the first category, OCD, which I just want to name, can be co-occurring with PDA. It doesn't mean they're mutually exclusive. Like if you have OCD, it's not PDA and vice versa. So often equalizing behavior or the behavior that's controlling of a PDA or of their surroundings to get back to a place of safety can look like OCD-like behavior where they're controlling things and needing things to be a certain way um, or, you know, correcting the words you say or where you can sit in the room or where a sibling can, you know, play or how they can play, etc. It can look very much like OCD. And actually, when my son was three and a half, I that's what I thought was going on too. I was like, this looks like OCD behavior, right? And I had never even heard of PDA, but it also... There was something about it that didn't make sense in that frame, hi everybody, because it was fluctuating so much and it wasn't as much towards objects, it was more towards me or other safe individuals, right? And it wasn't present with other people as much because of the masking. But a question I ask is like, does it appear that the behaviors that are controlling are more ruminative? more anxiety provoked, more thought based, where it's like, I have to do X thing before I feel safe? Or is it sort of reflexive? And it's almost like they don't notice that they're doing it, but it, it might only come out with you as the parent with the, as a safe person. So those are questions to ask. Also understanding that like, treatment or support for OCD is pretty much the opposite of how we support PDA kids. And with parents who have both those things going on, they have the responsibility, the very difficult responsibility to discern, okay, how much am I gonna help this child get through their sticky brain so they don't get stuck and it becomes a bigger fear versus how much am I gonna accommodate so that they're not push, pushed past their threshold of tolerance. So, you know, 
I think what's important here are that there's two different approaches to support the child and neither are wrong or right. They're just different root causes. So that's something to think about. Oppositional defiant disorder. Um, personally, I, I'm not a clinician and I, so there's like a huge caveat with this, but I don't think this diagnosis is like Okay, when I was an academic, like when we had to define categories, they had to be mutually exclusive from other things and really be explanatory. And ODD for me, like when I look in the Diagnostic Statistical 5 manual and I look at how much the surface level behaviors that are described overlap with so many other things, it does not seem like an explanatory category or diagnosis. And so, you know, I would, I don't really believe in ODD. I think there's always a deeper root cause. And Mona Delahook, who wrote Beyond Behaviors, also has this perspective. I think there are a lot of clinicians in the new paradigm of understanding the nervous system who also don't really believe in ODD. However, you know, it is what exists as a diagnosis and PDA doesn't. So a lot of kids who are PDA do get this diagnosis. And it doesn't mean as a parent that you've done anything wrong or that it wasn't a helpful exercise to like understand your child, right? But we have to think about what actually supports the root cause of the behaviors regardless of diagnosis. And with ODD, some of the suggestions are the opposite of what helps a PDA child, which is like, you know, more strict parenting, more, you know, routine consequences, etc. So that's why it's an empirical question, because most of you are here because you've tried a bunch of other things and it didn't work. Right. So if your child is diagnosed with ODD, you're probably here because things aren't working. And I want you to take that as a clue of like, OK, we had this hypothesis of ODD just because the doctor said that's what it was. It doesn't mean it's true. Now we've experimented with like how to treat ODD. It didn't work because things escalated. And my child's not doing well. Now let's experiment with another approach or lens, which is the PDA lens. So with ADHD, you know, this is something that often co-occurs with PDA, but the role that I play with your family is to isolate the PDA variable. What does that mean? That means we're going to do everything we can to support that root cause perception of the loss of autonomy or equality and how it activates their nervous system. And once we can get that to a point where it's not obscuring all the other things that could be going on, like trauma or temperament or, you know, relationship stuff that we have to rework on or ADHD or other things. We need to isolate that variable so we can see more clearly all the other ways that we can support our child. Like, for example, I'll give you two examples with my own son where you know, he had, he is PDA, but he also had a lot of relationship trauma with me, right? So we isolate the PDA variable, but we also had to work on our relationship and do some trauma healing with him. And we did neurofeedback, we did the safe and sound protocol. And for four years, you know, I've been doing intensive occupational therapy with him, both in the home, but out of the home, primarily as a way to re- conceptualize and strengthen our relationship. And I needed to learn tools that were not verbal to get to a place of connection because 
you know, I didn't know how to communicate and connect with a child who wasn't highly verbal or interested in reading books, puzzles, doing activities. Like that's just not my personality, right? Or the way that my brain works, right? I'm like, let's have a conversation about deep things and we're gonna like get to know each other. But that's not how my son is. He's very body-based. So it had to be through play and occupational therapy. Now that his trauma, some of his trauma has been healed. Our relationship is so much better. Um, he's very accommodated. He's also on medication, has a service dog, and we basically just move between points of safety, right? Like I don't take him anywhere that's not a affirming space, um, which is I'm actually going to talk about in module five in my current cohort for the paradigm shift program. But now that all that's in place, now I'm like, oh, it looks like he also has ADHD. Right. But I couldn't see that until I had isolated those other variables. And and that's like really what the page is for and what my role is, hopefully, to help you understand your, your child's brain better, to understand like, OK, we've got this, you know, accommodation. We're working on this. But oh, wait, they still have a ton of generalized anxiety. And maybe we can also support that. Right. Because it's never black and white of just like. PDA and nothing else <laughs> because your kids have personalities and they have temperaments and they have, you know, depending on their age, they'll have different traumatic experiences. Like mine was, my son's was with me because I was a really strict parent and school was like his safe place where he could go crazy and be chaotic with other kids because he's ex extroverted. Um, for other families, there's going to be more safety that always was happening happening at home, but there was potentially some trauma with school. So, you know, we have to look at the nuances and isolate that one variable so we can see the picture clearly and move forward in a way that aligns with your particular child. Okay, so the second, the last two questions, I think, are a little bit easier to answer than the one that I just answered because that was a little more nuanced and I never want to like get into the space of clinicians because that's not what I am. <laughs> um, so the fifth question is what if my child seems fine at school and really like okay and happy and compliant, but that they come home and explode or shut down and it's like two different versions of the child. And this might be really hard to hear, because, and this would really like freak me out too. And it's something I didn't understand in the beginning because my son is so social. Um, so it was hard for me to discern, like, is he masking when he's with other kids and like internalizing his threat response? Or is he actually having a really good time? And that's just who he is when he's regulated, right? But the patterns I did see clearly and I see clearly often over and over again are like, when you have that dichotomy of two different versions of the child and the child comes home and it's just like as soon as they perceive safety, there's this total change in their body and expression, that's masking, right? Where they can seem fine at school or with a grandparent, but then their brain in those situations is actually on a subconscious level perceiving like I'm not safe to let the threat response out. I'm going to like as a survival mechanism, totally internalize it. 
and potentially imitate neurotypical norms on top of that, depending on the child. And then I'm going to come home and the moment I perceive safety, it's going to be a different version of me. And that was like when my son was still in public school, it was kind of incredible because we live three blocks away from the school. We bought the house here in Michigan to be in a good school district next to the school where his cousins were going to go. And that crashed and burned, as you may <laughs> relate to. But um you know, I would walk to pick him up and he would seem fine. He'd be coming out of the school. He'd get on his bike. And the second, like his face was not facing the other, the school, the teachers, the other kids, it would like a mask would come off. It would drop. I would see the tension and he'd have, I would always have to have a pacifier in my pocket and he would put it they used to wear masks so he would put it behind his mask to regulate and go like race home as fast as he possibly could and it was you know i could see physically the mask coming off and the first time i noticed this was actually like almost four years ago now when he was starting to go into burnout i would leave you know i had given my two two months notice because i felt like institution needed me for that long i'm such a people pleaser but i had started to take off vacation and i didn't know what to do with him because he was like kind of like a feral animal and or shut down and so i would take him this was in the summer i would take him to a, a pool that we belonged to during the day and so there wasn't really anyone there during the week because it's dc and everybody works um and I would just push him back and forth across the pool with my infant son's like little floaty that you can put your legs through and it had shade, right? So he was like all, he was three and a half, almost four. Was he? No, he was four and a half. I'm sorry, four and a half. And I would push him back and forth in silence and there were like trees rustling around and it was almost like he was like a baby. You know, he had a pacifier in, he was in this little floaty. I would push him back and forth just hours like that in the pool but sometimes later in the day like friends from his daycare would come and the second he would see them he would take off like the floaty and like throw his pacifier at me and it was like a change would come over his face and it was just this like what is happening you know i'd never heard of masking i i'd never thought that he was autistic you know all the things and so that's really something to tune into. And as you get to know your child better and as you start to accommodate them better, it will become more clear when they're masking versus when they're actually enjoying themselves. Um, but it is, you know, it is something to be aware of. Okay, I have a question. Is masking similar to a fawn trauma response? Okay, so this is a question I get. And I think there can be overlap, but from my understanding of a fawn response, it's more like proactively attempting to ingratiate yourself with an authority figure for protection, right? So like a fawning child might in a classroom, you know, be the teacher's helpful help helper, go over and try and like really be seen, but in a particular role with the teacher so that they're protected by the authority that actually activates them versus a child who like is completely compliant and quiet and just puts their head down potentially or like doesn't say anything um 
that's one more introverted expression that that's a little different than fawning. But then you also have like my son who masked by being very like outgoing and pretending to be more neurotypical, right? And he would just shove down the activation and then come home and he wasn't fawning. Like he was still a little naughty. Like I remember when he was in daycare, like the daycare when he was in his mid threes, late threes, they were like, you know, Cooper really just gets all the kids to do these crazy things. Like he took this other kid today and they've just decided like, they're going to go behind these, play structures and just like intentionally poop in their pants to like make the teachers upset. (laughs) And it was just like, like he would do things like that. Like when he was fully potty trained, like it was intentional he would like get other kids and be like, let's go do this. So that's, that's, you know, that's a little bit of equalizing mixed in with masking, not fawning at all, not internalized, you know, it's, these aren't like scientific categories. These are just lenses to help you understand. I mean, they are right. Like we could probably measure with cortisol, adrenaline, metabolism, like all of that. We can measure whether it's fight, flight, freeze, fight, flight versus freeze. But in terms of what we can observe, these are lenses. Okay. I got a little off track, but yes, the answer is to the question. Yes. They can seem fine at school versus at home. And that does not mean they're not PDA. It means they're masking. And it's actually quite characteristic of an extra externalized expression. Yeah. So (laughs) Jane says, my son used to love getting other kids to get naughty things and would find it so hilarious. Yeah. Yeah. That's like definitely my son's personality. And it still comes out and it's something we have to like, navigate with the teachers and stuff yeah so here's a question my child can't even go to school i don't understand how other pda kids are even able to handle school on any level not even on online school yeah so something to understand is that there you know if there's a distribution a normal distribution in the population of children right our kids are like way in the tail ends as outliers in terms of like their nervous system. And so they're not even like under the main part of the bell curve. But if we take that little part and bring it into our line of vision, there's a bell curve within that too of PDA kids. And so some are more disabled by their threat response than others, right? And so there is a distribution within PDA expressions. And, you know, this is why it's so important to listen to autistic voices and advocates and, you know, the internal lived experience from all of these different individuals, but also be able to put it in the context of a distribution and variability. Okay. And that's, I mean, what I hope my contribution is because I am not PDA autistic, but I am a researcher, so I can understand um, distributions, variability, variables, all the things. So another thing to keep in mind is like different school, like different schools are more available or accessible to PDA kids, right? But they're also differently accessible or available to you, right? Because you have different financial constraints, different work constraints, all the things. Yeah. 
Okay, so the last thing, the last question that I had was, what if my child isn't explosive? Can they still be PDA? And I want to say a resounding yes to this because over the past year and a half, I've coached now hundreds of families and many of those that come to me with teenagers are PDA individuals that are internalized expressions. And because the child wasn't explosive, but rather internalizing, shutting down, disassociating, it wasn't so clear that the child was PDA. However, they, without accommodations, do reach a point of burnout or being more disabled from cumulative nervous system activation. And, you know, it can be really hard for families who have internalized PDA children or teens because they don't have all of the visual cues that someone like I did, right? Like I had all the indicators. I always have the indicators. Like this is part of why I understand how the brain works so well is because my son externalizes everything, <laughs> right? Like constant equalizing, constant noises, constant growls, hissing. Like, you know, I can just like see inside his brain by observing without judgment, his behavior, his tone, his his externalization and yes it's difficult because it activates my nervous system but at the same time i feel very lucky because i saw it so clearly and a lot of families who have children with internalized expression or who are parents who are pda with internalized expression of which there are many it takes much longer to understand that this is going on and so you know, at first I thought like, man, I, I really wish I had had a child whose threat response was internalized selfishly. But, you know, it's they're both complex and they're both challenging and they both stem from the same root cause of the nervous system. Yeah. And Jane, great question. Like, obviously, this is not either or black and white. It never is like you can have an internalized expression, but like as activation gets higher, the child is more extroverted or externalized in their expression. And that's often what happens with these teens, right? Or you have different settings that are more internalized or externalized, or yeah, it can be a hybrid. It's not, I just use categories. Okay, so like my scientific brain is like, let's define categories and measure things so that they're easy to communicate with you. But my mama brain is like everything is connected and we're all connected and it's all connected. <laughs> so like both can be true. Um, okay, so I got a little tangenty, but hopefully it was helpful to you guys. Um, as you know, we have the paradigm shift cohort coming up starting on April 5th. I'm going to run it again in July. This will be every three or four months. So if you can't get in now, you can get in another time. But if you would like to participate in this next cohort, please join the waitlist because I'm opening it up to the waitlist on March 12th, this Sunday at 9 a.m. Eastern Standard Time. Um, and there are a limited number of spots and I'd love to see you in there for more hang time. All right, everybody. It was so nice to be with you. Thanks for coming. Bye. 
Thanks everyone for being here with me at the At Peace Parents podcast. This is your source for all things related to understanding, supporting, accommodating, and advocating for your PDA child. To go deeper on any of these topics, check out my course offerings and masterclasses at the website www.atpeaceparents.com. To completely transform the way you think about and relate to your child and to bring peace and stability to your home, join us for the next cohort of the Paradigm Shift program.